So I think on a variety of levels, it should be highlighted way more often than it is. That science is never so. And the fact that it isn't is a good thing. Welcome, dear listener, to part one of this two-part collab episode of Into the Impossible with Event Horizon host, John Michael Godier. Brian and Michael delve deep into Brian's personal concerns with the state of science and its politicization. You're going to get some rare insight into the philosophy of science and how science really gets done. Is science ever settled? Can we ever fully solve general relativity? Is freedom of scientific expression at risk? What ethical standards should scientists uphold? Is graduate science education becoming obsolete? Could ideas as radical as Einstein's were in his time survive today? Is the Nobel Prize fairly awarded? While you ponder the depths of these dilemmas, send us your thoughts in the form of a review and grace us with five stars. Now, prepare to stretch your scientific process as Brian Keating and John Michael Godier go into the impossible. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Dr. Brian Keating, welcome back to the program. It's always a good day when I'm on the show with you, John. This is like the fifth time, isn't it? <laughs> the fifth time this year. Yes, we, 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 <laughs> we just keep doing it. Now, Brian, I am interested in general relativity because that, that theory is weird. It's not like quantum theory where you have all this sort of, I mean, we use that all the time, but we also use general relativity, but surrounding general relativity is a sort of cloud of questions still, even though it's observationally proven to be the case, there seem to be discrepancies. So in the history of general relativity, the very beginning, it seems like Einstein was not the only scientist very close to formulating this sort of way of thinking about the universe, this description of the universe, and that there were others. And that the general trend at the time, over 100 years ago, was that we were moving towards this theory. So, and yet here we are <laughs> a century later, and we, we're still questioning it. What exactly is the weirdness surrounding the both the theories of relativity? Well, I think there's a notion that once scientific kind of verified information or evidence comes in that it somehow is born complete and is established in perpetuity. At least that's the way it sounds. We get a notion that these scientists usually lone geniuses in the theoretical framework or teams of thousands in the experimental context that I'm more conversant with will provide a measurement and or a claim. And then the question is, what not are what are the kind of accurate aspects of that claim, but where are the deficiencies? And more than that, what sort of lacunae or gaps or flaws does this correct in a previously accepted theory or paradigm? And yet it will have to raise other questions that are intrinsic to its own, the new novel theory or new observation will inevitably raise new questions itself. And that's healthy. But I think the general public will always think, well, that's settled science. You know, we hear about and that's, you know, one of my one of my complaints about, you know, calling anything settled science from COVID origins to uh, to global warming by anthropocentric uh, human activities, to say something is settled forever is just the height of hubris. And it 
actually does a disservice because it shuts the door to a potential young Alberta Einstein or you know, someone else. Oh, I can't make a contribution because this is settled. So there's, there's nothing left for me to do. It's just stamp collecting. So I think on a variety of levels, it should be highlighted way more often than it is that science is never settled. And the fact that it isn't is a good thing. Never settled science. Now, as a scientist, you are always subject to revision. But the thing is, is that I've noticed a lot of scientists can be very reluctant to revise. In other words, once a, a theory gets established, it there can be pushback on any sort of questioning of that theory. Do you see a dogma within science, or at least some scientists in this regard? Oh, absolutely. I think scientists, for all their atheism, and uh, I'm not speaking personally of myself in this context, I, I call myself a practicing agnostic, which I think is is probably the most economical way a scientist sh- should behave, but we can talk about that later. But the dogma is something you typically associate with theology or religion, or you know, at some level, political parties, or maybe sports fanaticism. But it's every bit as rampant in science as, as it is in those other realms, from politics to sports. And it's sort of ludicrous to expect, on the one hand, that we claim that scientists are just ordinary, average people. And on the other hand, we want to portray us, you know, myself and my fellow colleagues, as ineffable, infallible, you know, kind of boffins that never make mistakes and therefore can't be doubted, right? If, if you're ineffable, as the Pope used to be considered, then you can't be questioned. That, that's the scary thing. And I think, as I think it was Feynman or Sagan, I always conflate these two guys, but they said something like, I'd rather have questions that cannot be answered than answers that cannot be questioned. But when you have something that's settled science, then by definition, you can't question it because it's like questioning evidence for gravity when you drop an anvil on your foot. Like You'd have to be kind of ludicrous to question the existence of something that's settled after all. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have extremely well-vetted, well-tested, indeed peer-reviewed, replicatable scientific facts that we can learn from. But to not account for the gaps, the lacuna that I spoke about, is a belief in the ineffability of scientists, which smacks, as you say, of dogma. Now, do you think politics confounds this? In other words, do you think that when science becomes politicized, the politicians can actually play into this and create even more of a dogma? Yeah, I think scientists allow themselves to be used as pawns of politicians at their peril for many reasons. I made a video for, it happens to be a conservative media outlet called Prager University. I also have a version of it on my own YouTube channel. And it's called Follow the Science. And it's all about the science, TM, you know, trademark, where there's one version of science. And my original title for that was, going to, I was going to call it Political Scientists. Meaning that, you know, we cosmologists sometimes, we biologists, we physicists, we get enthralled by the rapturous attention that the general public pays to people like us with advanced degrees because we do cultivate a air of authority that cannot be questioned. But as Feynman said, if you want to have a scenario where you can question authority, you can question the answers, say, he was saying it obviously in the context of a church or some religious organization. Well, there is no like one powerful religious organization, really, that people look to for ineffability. Uh, that may have been true in the past of the Catholic Church. It was certainly never true of my religion, Judaism. We never had an analog of a pope. And, uh, you know, generic Christianity doesn't feature that either. 
So where exactly are these answers coming from that can't be questioned? I think in large part, it's coming from the, from the you know, binding together, the alliance of politics and science. And in fact, Eisenhower warned about this. And he's famous for his military industrial complex. I, I recently had Jay Padacharya on the podcast. He's an eminent MD, PhD at Stanford University. And he was the one co-authored of the uh, Great Barrington Declaration that basically advocated for common sense, not locking down, working on vaccinating the most vulnerable people in society. And he was shut down. He was investigated. He was brought up on suspicious charges by his home institution, Stanford University. And it was really a political witch hunt for someone who was approaching it purely scientifically as just answering the question, what do we know about the efficacy of lockdowns? Not the vaccine, not where did it originate, and we can debate all those things. And, and it was really terrifying to know what he went through, which eventually culminated with a email, which was unraveled by the FOIA process, Freedom of Information Act, in which Dr. Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins, a director of the NIH and the, uh, the chairman of the COVID task force in 2020, colluded and conspired to, quote, take down this lunatic fringe element, which sadly includes even a Nobel Prize winner, which was postulating that we shouldn't just have random massive lockdowns. And so Collins was asking for a coordinated takedown in the media, in government, and in academia of a scientific researcher. And this this is just unconscionable to me. And The fact that he had to endure that, he had dozens of death threats against him, his family, he's finally emerged from it, but that that took over science should terrify everybody. And the quote, you know, this quote from from Eisenhower, his farewell address at the same time when he, when Eisenhower spoke about the dangers of the military industrial complex, he also talked about the corruption of the scientific process and the implementation by the federal government of holding scientific discovery in so much respect that we would ignore the equal and opposite danger that public policy, in other words, political decisions, could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. Now, thank God, John, that you know cosmology doesn't usually offer these kind of existential crises, but that's maybe a symptom of maybe the irrelevance of what I do. You know, if you think about it, if, if, you know, at some point dark energy becomes really important to your life, I have a couple of good psychiatrists to recommend to you. On the other hand, if you're locked into your house because of the threat of a virus with a 0.0002% kill rate in your age demographic, you have a right to question the very facilities that are organized to construct such, such situations. So, it's a scientific discipline by scientific discipline consideration. We need to assess it, but it doesn't stop the conflation of sort of knowledge for wisdom that is ultimately dangerous, not only to society. I mean, it's bad enough that it couldn't impact society, but it's dangerous to the scientific process itself because eventually, let's say you're a Democrat and you like Fauci and you like Biden. Well, if you think there'll never be a Republican administration that you ceded all this power to, then you're just deluding yourself. So I think everybody of all political stripes should be very cautious of scientists who engage and, and, and weigh in on things completely out of their area of expertise. It's called the halo effect. 
We don't look to you know Grammy Award winners to tell us who to vote for, usually, or Emmy Award winners. We look to scientists. Every four years, they come out and say which of the Democrats they'd most like to see be president. And this is, includes cosmologists and colleagues and people I've had on my podcast. So this, to me, is, is a very dangerous, novel you know, kind of thing, but something that even Eisenhower was aware of in the 1950s. Yeah, it, it does seem to me that that things sometimes never change. And in certain ways, it hasn't changed since the time of Eisenhower. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think that the key in getting out of this sort of conundrum is to get back to the philosophy, put the the pH back in the D and go and look at pure philosophy, the, the original underpinnings of the scientific method and say, look, this is how we need to do it and reiterate that to everybody within science? I think that's a very good question. I've noted that colleagues who teach in the medical school here at UC San Diego, thank God we don't have a law school, just kidding, but they, uh, lawyers and even if they're business school, they teach classes on ethics. We don't have any mandatory classes on ethics at any of the elite universities I've attended from Case Western Reserve, where I got my undergraduate degree, to Brown University, my PhD, Stanford, Caltech, where I postdoc, and now here at UC San Diego. There might be some, you know, kind of ethical training at diktats that we must adhere to. And every couple of years, I have to take a two-hour online course where the mouse movements of my cursor are monitored to make sure I take the full two hours, you know, to tick off all these boxes of different ethical and kind of moral conundrums that could come up, including valuable things and sexual harassment prevention training and anti-racism training and whatever. But there's nothing that's visceral as being in a classroom. Now, why do we prioritize teaching relativity and we don't prioritize teaching ethics. What do you do in the situation when your research advisor is trying to claim credit for work that you did? Or what do you do when you catch one of your colleagues as a graduate student cheating? Or how do you behave if you're not sure if you're going to be able to get a good postdoc if you don't kind of maybe fudge some of the numbers? Um, I'm just making all these up. But, but the point is you never encounter ethical training as a young person you're just expecting and relying on people's own self-interest in the pH of the PhD to kind of do it the right way. And I think that's dangerous. Certainly medical schools, business schools, and law schools don't do that. So why don't we do this in the physical sciences? And I've never gotten a satisfactory answer to that other than, well, you should do it. <laughs> I'm like, thanks a lot. You know, <laughs> Like I just have a new required class. But you, you obviously prioritize what you want to improve. And you measure what you want to manage. And universities are not doing a good job of this, unfortunately. Now, as I recall, Einstein himself, during the rollout of special and general relativity, also faced politics and got a bunch of angry letters from scientists, or at least one that I think was signed by 30 scientists, saying, you need to get rid of this theory. It's, it's bunk. And yet, it survived observationally. So do you see a difference between the politics of what Einstein faced within science? Now I'm leaving outside actual national politics, which were really bad in Einstein's time, obviously. But within science, do you still see this? So somebody comes up with a, a, a seemingly crazy new theory. Do they still face the same challenges Einstein did? Well, they do and they don't. So what you're referring to as this famous book, it was called 100 Scientists Against Einstein, to which Einstein famously quipped, if I was wrong, all it would take is one scientist to be against me to prove me wrong, which is actually pithy and funny, but, uh, but, it's, but it's true on some level and sort of some platonic ideal where 
the truth always comes out, but that's not often the case. You have people, as I mentioned, that have been you know promoting in the biological and the epidemiological and and, and the vaccine you know, debate that we've all been hearing about ad nauseum for it's 2023 almost. And the COVID variant has a 19 on it, so you know, it's spanning four years. It's kind of wild. But this debate is ranging with more and more intensity. You know, the longer this kind of goes on, the longer that we find out what was kind of obscured from, from public uh, debate and dissemination and what was kind of counter to our own logic and facts that you could get on an airplane and you had to wear a mask unless you were eating on that same airplane. Or you could walk into a restaurant and you could have to sit down at your table and not wear a mask. So COVID had this magic ability to know when you were six feet off the ground versus three feet off the ground. And it would counterfactual to every single thinking, logical, rational person's knowledge of basic reasoning, not, not biology. This is just ludicrous, or that you could protest in a, in a protest, a very important racial justice, but you couldn't get together for Thanksgiving for more than an hour and 20 minutes here in California in 2020, even if it was with your own family. So you had a stage of protest in order to have more than just your immediate family and be together for more than 120 minutes. So that's insane. And it's and it, again, it goes and hurts the public's impression of science. And that's obviously a lot lower down. I worry more about my freedom, my physical freedom, my, my, my freedom of speech and thought more than I worry about being a cosmologist. And, and even despite how important scientific contributions are to my identity as a human being, you guys know this from all the people you've spoken to, that when you're a scientist, it's like, I'm also a pilot. I fly small little planes around California. And that's part of my identity. I have many identities. We all do. Father, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a husband. All these different identities, one kind of outsized component of the Brian Keating homunculus is my core identity as a scientist. And I'm even saying I'm willing to kind of subjugate that compared to my identity as an American, as someone who wants to be free and practice and enjoy fundamental human rights. And I think from my perspective, that's the most dangerous thing that scientists are waiting in on, sacrificing their credibility for no good reason and undermining the very credibility that humankind and our society will have in science. I think there's been irreparable damage to science in the last few years. And I'm kind of scared about the brave new world that say my kids or your listeners' kids are going to enter into. And I'm one of the greatest STEM champions that I think about, that I know about, because it's, it's such a big component of who I am. And so it pains me. And I don't know that there's a real good solution to counteract it. So for those reasons, I think we have to be very, very concerned. I think what you're doing and, and what I'm trying to do on my channel is to get voices out that don't always agree. And this, by the way, we can move away from COVID anytime you want. But one of the things I've been getting into is related to what you asked in terms of fringe theorists, which are considered fringe, but maybe correct. And I get couple emails a day from you know listeners or viewers of the podcast and they're saying well I've come to this flaw in Einstein's theory and I need your help because I'm not good at math and we'll share the Nobel Prize together I don't mind because I trust you or I get you know I saw aliens in 1973 in back of my Ford Thunderbird and in uh, Kenyon Ohio and 
okay, great. You know, this, <laughs> so just because you say something and, and, and you're fringe and everyone's against you and nobody believes you doesn't make you right. The syllogism doesn't hold that just because people thought Einstein was wrong, a hundred scientists, therefore you're going to be as right as he ended up being proven to be. So we have to be careful. I don't want to over-dramatize it. It's not like, you know, science is in complete free fall, but there are reasons to be concerned and there are reasons to listen to members of different branches of the academy that hold alternative viewpoints. You guys have hosted Gary Nolan. He's an exceptionally qualified biologist at Stanford, a cancer immunologist, therapist, named chair professor, started six companies. You guys did an interview. I did a co-interview with him and Avi Loeb. He's also a named chair professor at Harvard. These guys are working on fringe topics. I mean, topics that weren't even to be whispered about a few years ago. Alien objects, artifacts, sightings, studies, and so forth. First-person encounters, military adversarial encounters. These are fascinating things. Guess what? Three years ago, they were considered total lunatic fringe and only to be kind of trafficked in by people like Tom DeLonge and who I've had on my podcast, but not to be taken seriously. And to give Tom his credit, he actually stimulated a lot of interest in this field, which I can't say for sure. I know where it's going to go in the future. I'm not involved with any of the research, but I want to amplify voices that are seeking truth and sort of not be on the side of those who would want to censor or suppress. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, I want to point everybody towards Dr. Brian's podcast, Into the Impossible, with Brian Keating. And the YouTube channel is aptly named Brian Keating. And I want to say this and, and run it by you. Polarization. And we live in, I think, perhaps the most polarized society in a very long time because everybody's on one side or the other. And that's I don't think that's very healthy. I think I wish we could go back to a time and I lived through this time of a much, much more open dialogue and with mutual respect and all these sorts of things. Do you think that the polarization is whether it's science, politics, whatever, do you think the polarization is the real problem where people pick a side and stick to it? Whereas maybe we should try to say, look, look let's just have open dialogue and talk. Yeah, it's, it's frustrating because I'm not actually a proponent of what are typically called debates. You know, you hear about these debates and I've hosted a few they tend to cause people to revert to their priors and they tend to therefore entrench in sort of a confirmation bias slash some cost fallacy bias, one's own positions that they go into ahead of time. And it also kind of portrays science in an inaccurate way of being settled by debate. I mean, I could debate Christopher Hitchens about the cosmic microwave background. And I'm sure, quite sure, I would lose the debate to him, you know, whatever it is, <laughs> because he was a much more skilled, artful practitioner of rhetoric than I am. So I think the process of debate in, in kind of a live action format that I've sometimes engaged in on my channel is not ultimately useful. It's kind of fun and it gets attention. And if it can be done civilly and with comedy and comedy, that, that can be useful. And, and I try to do that. But 
ultimately, I think you're right. I think people revert to their priors. The distribution's narrow and more centered on the pre-existing conceptions that one went into. And therefore, I think it's, it's quite disheartening. I don't think that we can really expect science would sort of benefit from such things. I mean, ironically, that's the way a lot of original peer review was done in the Royal Society Great Hall, where I hope to be lecturing next year, as a matter of fact. But if you go and do a live experiment, it's really the process of storytelling versus the actual story itself. And that can obscure the details and the data. So I think I think there's a place for it, but I don't share kind of the sanguinity, if, if that's a word, that it'll actually cause people to change their ideas. I mean, just look at politics. I mean, have you ever gone into a, watching a political debate, say, for president and changed your mind? I've never done that. And so it's, it's very rare. And in fact, nowadays we can vote 30 days before the election and therefore you won't even see some of the debates. So people just vote and the debates are kind of just like for television ratings. I don't want science to kind of devolve to that level either. It seems dangerous. That's when you get into situations where you could have another nightmare happen on the world stage and looking at what's happening with Ukraine, we're, we're getting very close to a nightmare, you know, and maybe yeah. we need to pull the debate back and start just having a dialogue and invite everybody worldwide. <laughs> to, to yeah. I mean, well, well, one one such debate has been proposed by frequent guest Eric Weinstein. Dr. Eric Weinstein is a mathematician. He's got a theory of everything, you know, which is called geometric unity. He's been on my podcast more than anybody else. And he last spring advocated for the resumption of above ground nuclear testing to kind of shock and awe the you know human beings that there really hasn't been a test that was witnessed, you know, since you know, some tests in the Bikini Atoll in nineteen fifty-two or something like that. Yeah, it all went underground, and I don't think there's been a test since the early nineties. Yeah, it's all underground or that's right. So his claim and I and, you know there's some issues with the safety of doing such a thing because you do need a fission bomb to initiate the fusion bomb. So there could be fallout. But but the, the point is that we're kind of blasé about the horrors of what a nuclear conflict could look like. And I've read things, very serious defense reports that speculate on the survivability and even the tactical ability of the US or Russia to win, quote unquote, a nuclear war. I mean, how insane is that? It's like, I want to be the last kind of human beings fighting against the cockroaches that, that still can inhabit. Now I know the whole earth wouldn't be immolated and, and humans even would survive and certainly life would survive and the planet will survive. The same is true of global warming. I mean, maybe we should have kind of a, a biodome, you know, somewhere we just let global warming go critically insane and really verify and just make it shock and awe. And, uh, hopefully no people would be there. But I had Tim Palmer on my podcast who shared the Nobel Prize for Global Warming with the IPCC and, and Al Gore, 2007. And he's called for like a CERN for climate change, you know, basically de dedicating the most powerful computers in the world, some of the most advanced technology. But what's better than kind of simulating global warming and making it more visceral? Because what are humans like? As you know, you're a master storyteller. And I've learned a lot about how to weave a story from you. And I can only aspire to be more like you in the future. But the point is, you do something that humans have done for thousands of years. You recognize the fact that humans learn six to 60 times faster with visuals than just hearing or reading or seeing data in a chart. So you perform visuals and that actually inspired me to do more of that on my channel. But anyway, the point is, 
Could we apply that to nuclear war safely? Could we apply that to global climate change safely? Could we apply that to AI and see the effects of a runaway AI and, and somehow firewall it and air gap it off? I don't know. I'm just totally spitballing here. But I think along the ideas that humans like to be shown, not told, maybe it's something we should think about. Well, within storytelling, yeah, yeah it, there is something to that. But at the same time, you can't really... I would say this. I would say this. We need to revisit Hiroshima and describe the horror of actually dropping such a bomb. Yeah. And remind everybody that this is going to be terrible for 90% of humanity if we do that. And that was a, that was trivial compared to yes. you know, the largest weapons. That's a thousand times less potent than the largest fusion device that we have capabilities of now. Yeah, Zarbamba, you know, just a, a 50 megaton blast. It, but you're right, John. I never thought of that. That's a great idea. You know, we talk about, and obviously my culture and being Jewish, you know, the Holocaust plays a huge role. And there's been tremendous amounts of, of kind of um, characterization, interviews, Schindler's List, the Butterfly Project. And for good reason, 6 million innocent people were killed, including 1.5 or 6 million children. And why is it so visceral? Why do we say never again? Well, because those stories have been told in a, in a beautiful way. And I had a Holocaust survivor, Rose Schindler, on my podcast about two years ago, and she and her husband survived Auschwitz. And it's very visceral. She's gone around to 20,000 people around the world and talked about her story. Well, why don't we do that for Hiroshima? I'm just thinking now, as you mentioned it, we should have similar things. Now, the, the, the issue is that Japanese were the bad guys and the, and the Jews weren't actively killing you know, millions of, of Chinese, raping Koreans and, and doing all the stuff that Japanese army was doing. So maybe it's a little bit more tricky, but you're, I think you're right. We should revisit the stories. There are some survivors left, not many, but maybe that will make it more visceral, John. Maybe you're right. Maybe that's the way to do it. And I I have struggled uh, over the course of my life. Now, Brian, I'm from the same country you are. Yeah. And and thinking about the thinking about the Holocaust to me is horrifying because it was horrifying, obviously. But just how do you let things get that bad where hatred reigns? How do things get that bad and how do we avoid it? Well, I think there's a notion that human beings are naturally good or intrinsically good. And I think that's a, an assumption that's never been kind of worn out by reality. I think individual humans are wonderful, but humanity as a whole is an extremely checkered path, past as, as, as every bit as ruthless and red and tooth and claws any other animal species, maybe more so because we've killed off so many species. And this is why, John, I, you know, to come back to our kind of bread and butter and how we pay the bills around our podcast, you know, this is why I'm very skeptical when I hear people like Lex Friedman, whose show I was on last year, hopefully go back for round two this year, um, saying that, you know, the discovery of alien life would change everything and, and it would just revolutionize and it would, you know, Lex's favorite word is, you know, it would bring love to the world. I don't think there's any chance of that happening. I mean, you and I, you know, I can go down to the beach here in, in San Diego and scoop up a, a glass of you know, Pacific Ocean's finest water, and uh, it'll have not an insignificant amount of microplastics in it and maybe some some dead fish. <laughs> like, in other words, we just crap on the environment where we know there's an abundance of life. I mean, Elon wants to go to this, Mars, and there's far better chances of making the undersea environment habitable for humanity to become intraplanetary rather than interplanetary. And I think we kind of overlook that and uh, and kind of make too much of it. So I don't know, to answer your question, how can we make the individual 
And I, I think this is a byproduct of, of science. I think I had a video come out recently called The Worst Nobel Prize Ever. And it's about Fritz Haber, who invented the Haber-Bosch process, which makes ammonia for nitrogen fertilizer, which allowed you and I to eat every day of our life. And he's been called the person who killed millions but saved billions. And this might dovetail nicely into other subjects, because what Fritz invented was a way to make at scale massive amounts of nitrogen. And that is a good thing because it allowed for fertilization. On the other hand, he then took the same tools, technology, learnings, and processes and used it to make and perfect chemical weapons, which were supervised by him and six other Nobel Prize so-called shock troops the German army had shot. Now, Fritz was a German Jew. This is World War I. And he won the Nobel Prize in 1918 after the chemical weapons that he helped to pioneer at scale were used to kill tens of thousands of Allied troops in direct violation of treaties that Germany had signed on to. So it wasn't like, you know, the U.S. The U.S. never signed on. Don't use it. We won't use an atom bomb before Hiroshima. We can debate the morality. Of it. I, I happen not to find that very interesting. But we hadn't like sworn that we would never use nuclear weapons before we used them. Germany did swear that they wouldn't use and attested to the fact they wouldn't use chemical weapons, and then they used them. And it was all because of this guy, Fritz Haber, who ultimately, and, and tragically, he lost a tremendous amount because of his knowledge, not his wisdom. He had very little wisdom. And his wife committed suicide. I believe one of his children committed suicide. They were racked with guilt. And he remained proud till his dying day. He died in the 1930s. And just seven years later, the mass industrial devastation of the Jews of Europe, in which you know five-sixths of the Jews of Europe were killed, many of them were killed by a product called Zyklon B, which was made by his factories in Germany, including members of his own family. So I always ask the question, well, do, do the billions outweigh the millions, so to speak? In, in other words, what is it true, John, that no one else would have ever come up with the Haber-Bosch process? It's not like the Mona Lisa there's only one Mona Lisa, and if you know Leonardo didn't paint it, it wouldn't exist, right? Or is it Michelangelo? <laughs> now I'm doubting myself. Anyway, we'll edit that out. The point being, an artistic creation, there's only one creator of it. It's unique. It's completely non-fungible, to use you know, kind of modern language. But a scientific discovery, there's only one representation of scientific truth. So it's natural that many people will come to discover the same scientific facts. They may not discover it on the same day as Einstein or Haber, but in many cases, they will discover it immediately afterwards, and perhaps even in a better incarnation, and certainly without perhaps the loss of, of human life that was uh, permitted by the activities of Fritz Haber. The Nobel Prize, Alfred Nobel, who famously was the inventor of dynamite, but also the founder of the prize, somewhat seemed to have regretted his his development of dynamite explosives because of their use in warfare and how, how bad they were. So he sort of thought about it and then rethought it, and it was overall bad. So what are your thoughts there? And this is how I work in a book plug, Losing the Nobel Prize by Dr. Brian Keating. <laughs> Perfect. That's great. Now, now my kids will be able to finally get into college and pay for it. So I think the Nobel Prize is a mixed blessing. It's certainly true that Alfred had many regrets, some of which were precipitated by the fact that he was wandering around Paris in the late 1870s. And he walked upon a news shop where he saw a newspaper that said Alfred Nobel 
the merchant of death is dead. And the article was less an obituary than a celebration. And not mourning him, but but uh, but reveling in the fact that this guy who'd killed more people through his inventions than any other had finally met his ultimate doom. <laughs> and it caused him to reevaluate, like Ebenezer Scrooge, or kind of reevaluate his role only by seeing what the counterfactual history would have been like if he had died. It was actually his older brother, Ludwig, who was dead. So it gave him an opportunity for redemption. And I think he then turned his entire fortune. He was not married. He had no children. And he gave the the uh, uh, essence of his fortune to prizes, which, in his words, should be given to the person. As I always point out, it was always in the singular. He only wanted to go to one person each year for each field who made an, a discovery or an invention in the field of physics that had the greatest benefit to mankind. So he was politically incorrect. He said mankind. Now they've changed it in Sweden. Now they say humankind. But anyway, so the greatest benefit. What does that mean? Well, Let's look at the first one. He eventually wrote down his will in 1895, and then he died less than a year later in 1896. And so I would say, make sure you make your will out before you die, you know, because who knows what will happen if you don't. And in his will, he kind of seemingly had in his mind a paradigm for what these awards would go for. And the most important part of the award is not the monetary value. It's that the, the award was given to the discovery that had a benefit so it's called what I call an ethical will. It has an ethical or moral component to it to agitate towards making the world better rather than just purely being financially remunerative. So he took this opportunity. And what prompted him? I think it was the discovery in 1895, a couple of days around the time he wrote his will, by Wilhelm Rentgen, who is working in Austria, Germany, and came upon an astonishing fact that when a cathode ray tube was generating high enough electronic energy, and those electrons were smashing into a target, that there'd be these mysterious rays that would come out of this collision. And that the rays would then propagate, and they could actually penetrate through wood and human flesh, and they would reveal through their exposure on a phosphorescent screen or later a photographic film, the interior contents of any object that had some penetrated amount of these later known as x-rays. So did that have a benefit? Of course, it had tremendous benefit. It revolutionized tremendous numbers of human lives and made it incredibly better and had an unquestionable benefit on humankind, which is exactly what he wanted to do. And since then, there's been many benefits to humanity not just in medicine, but in many other fields, thanks to physics discoveries, MRI, as I said, the, the X-ray, CAT scan, all sorts of incredible inventions that were purely physical inventions, as well as discoveries in nuclear medicine. So that's pretty amazing, because you don't see a lot of like medical Nobel Prizes that somehow reveal the mass of a neutrino or something like that. So it goes from physics to medicine rather than the other way around, which is fine. So that was kind of the paradigm. And so for that, he is to be lauded because he did make the world better. And, and the question now is, does the Nobel Prize Committee steer his, his kind of largesse in a way consistent with his values, but also to truly make the world better and benefit humanity? And there, I think there's some question. Thoughts on Werner Heisenberg. Heisenberg was an interesting character. He, more than others, kind of saw the power and the impact of the revolution that, that Einstein and Hilbert had started earlier, which is that basically objects in pure mathematics 
could have instantiations that would make them, in the words of uh, Eugene Wigner, unreasonably effective. In other words, that you could have a mathematical structure, purely mathematical, operators, matrices, and that they would then have a, a kind of application via this instantiation or representation of fundamental elementary particles, quantum mechanical particles. And he realized that and sought to unify the laws of mathematics with the laws of the physical world that were just kind of coming in vogue. And he was kind of a character. I mean, he famously came up with these ideas and you know, avoiding his hay fever in uh, this island off the coast of, of uh, I think it's off the coast of Norway. Uh, and Carlo Rovelli wrote a wonderful book about it uh, just, just recently. And I think it's, uh, you know, he's, he is kind of an inspirational character in that he was incredibly grounded and played kind of a foil to Schrodinger who was much more kind of spiritual and he would investigate the physics of sexuality and all sorts of other interesting topics, but he wasn't kind of the, the, the kind of pure seeker of connections between the mathematical reality, which had been, as I said, launched by Einstein and Hilbert and, and others, you know, scarcely three decades before him. So he is, uh, he is quite an impressive figure in the history of physics for sure. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. 